uh, Molly, you started your career as an, as a neuroscientist, really, uh, and you still are. So, and yet now, much of the work that you do is about moral judgment. What what journey got you there? I guess I've always been interested in how we make decisions, and in particular, why is it that the same person will sometimes make a decision that follows one set of principles or rules and other times make a wildly different kind of decision. Um, and these intra-individual variations in decision-making have always fascinated me in the moral domain specifically, but also other kinds of decision-making more broadly. So I really got interested in brain chemistry because this seemed to me a sort of neural implementation or solution for how a single person could be uh, so different in their disposition across time uh, mm -hmm. because we know brain chemistry is sensitive to aspects of the environment. So I sort of picked up that methodology as a tool with which to study why it is that our decisions uh, can shift so much even within the same person. And morality, I think, is, is one very clear demonstration of how this happens. But are you, is your work actually connecting? Are you already doing that, that research of connecting moral judgment to, to chemistry? Yeah, so um, one of the first entry points into the moral psychology literature during my PhD was a study we did where we gave people uh, different kinds of psychoactive drugs. Um, we gave people an antidepressant drug that affects their serotonin. We gave people an ADHD drug that affects their noradrenaline. And we looked at how this effect, these drugs affected the way people made moral judgments. And in that literature, you can compare two different schools of moral thought for how people uh, ought to make moral decisions. So on the one, one hand, you have consequentialist theories, which advocate that the morally right action is the one that maximizes the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And on the other hand, you have deontological theories, which argue that um, some actions are just forbidden. There's a set of absolute moral rules that you cannot break, even if in some cases adhering to those rules results in worse outcomes for people. So these are two traditions that are, are really at odds from one another, a very, very long-standing uh, debate in philosophy. And what we found that was kind of interesting was that if you enhance people's serotonin function, um, this makes people more deontological in their judgments. And we had some ideas for why this might be the case to do with serotonin and aversive processing, the way we deal with losses. Um, but that was sort of the, the starting point for, for using both neurobiological and psychological tools for probing why it is our, our moral judgments and our moral behaviors can, can vary so much, even within the same person. And when you, when you use the word deontological, uh, do you mean, do you refer to how people behave or how it's expressed in you know, in their reaction to others, or do you ask them how they think about it? Because those can be very different. Absolutely, and, and one thing that, that has long fascinated me and, and that I'm thinking about increasingly um, now is, is why there's so often a distinction between what we think is right or wrong, how we'll judge another person's action, and um, what we actually do ourselves in the situation. And, um, with respect to deontology, these, these theories are, are normative theories. They're, they're prescriptions for what we ought to do, 
And there's a long tradition in moral psychology understanding or trying to understand how actual human judgments about what we think is right or wrong um, uh, maps onto these ethical theories that have been really uh, painstakingly uh, mapped out by, by uh, philosophical scholars. I mean, one, one of the, something that puzzles me here is really what is, what is the psychological reality of these philosophical dimensions? Yeah. I, I understand the ontology, I understand, I mean, I understand the idea, but uh, is there, can you really classify people or can you, and, and would the classification of people apply both to what they say, mm -hmm. to what they do, and to what they feel, or is there a dissociation? Because you know, I might have, I might have ideas, you know, where I'm quite tolerant of certain actions, and at the same time, if you check me, I'd be actually disgusted by these actions. So, yeah. which of these counts? Uh, yeah. How people feel, or how, or what they say, or. That is the that is the the crux of, of all of this research. I think um, when people are making judgments, much of the time they're doing this sort of reasoned out kind of calculation or evaluation of, of consequences. We can think of them um, using a sort of system two kind of thinking, and it's probably more likely that judgments are going to reflect a set of ideals or principles that people feel they ought to or, or in an ideal world would like to conform to. Of course, when the rubber hits the road and people are making actual decisions that have real consequences, strong incentives to behave in an unethical way, um, then we get, we get overwhelmed by uh, these different sources of value and, and can often behave in a way that's inconsistent with our, with our principles. I was actually asking about something that's neither of those. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was asking about indignation. Mm. That is indignation just as an emotion, yeah. as an emotional response, because mm. uh, I can think of many behaviors that I would, you know, condone in the sense that I would not be opposed, you know, I, I don't have the grounds to oppose them, and yet they, I, I don't like them. Yeah. So, uh, does this fit into your system? Yeah, and I think I think that indignation in particular, or a kind of uh, a retaliative desire to punish wrongdoing, is actually the product of, of of a much less deliberative system. So we have some data where we we uh, gave people the opportunity to uh, punish by inflicting a, a financial cost on someone who who treated them unfairly or fairly, and we varied whether the person who is going to get punished would actually find out if they've been punished or not. We were able to do this by making the size of the overall um, pie mm -hmm. ambiguous. Now, if people are punishing others in order to enforce a social norm, to teach a lesson, I'm punishing you because I think you've done something wrong and I don't want you to do this again in the future, then people should only invest in punishment if the person who's being punished finds out that they've yeah. been punished. Um, if punishment is sort of rational and forward-looking in this way, then when the person isn't going to find out they've been punished, it's not worth it to punish. This is not what we find at all. In fact, people punish almost the same amount 
um, even when the target of punishment will never find out that they've been punished, which suggests to me that punishment and, and revenge and desire for retaliation are this sort of knee-jerk reaction, a sort of backward-looking retrospective evaluation um, to the harm rather than a goal-directed deliberative desire to uh, promote the greater good. I follow that. I, I agree uh, completely. How does that map into deontology? Because you know it, it's it's the same. Yeah. But one of those, you know, you don't really need to think to yeah. uh, to get angry at somebody treating a stranger badly. Exactly. Uh, that just happens to you. Mm -hmm. But to be deontological, I mean, that is something else. I mean, that's uh, that. It's a thought. So, are those two highly correlated in practice? I think the fact that. Our work suggests indignation is this very uh, knee-jerk, rule-based kind of um, reaction that doesn't really consider consequences, suggests that it's, it's very intimately tied to deontological intuitions. And, and there's been some really interesting recent work uh, from my lab, from uh, Dave Rand's lab at Yale, um, suggesting that uh, having a, a very um, uncalculated kind of deontological response to moral violations signals to other people that you yourself are less likely to violate those moral rules. So people find you more trustworthy if you are a moral stickler, if you say it's absolutely wrong to harm one person if, even if it will save many others. So we've done experiments where we give people the option to uh, play a cooperative game with someone who endorses a deontological morality and says there are some rules that you just can't break, even if they have good consequences. Um, we compare that to someone who's consequentialist, says, well, there are certain circumstances in which it is okay to harm one person, if that will have better consequences. The average person would much rather interact with and trust a person who advocates sticking to moral rules. And this is really interesting because it suggests that um, in addition to the sort of uh, cognitive efficiency you get by having a heuristic for morality, um, it also can, can give you social benefits. Well, uh, the benefit that people get I mean, of, from taking a, a deontological position they look more trustworthy, don't they? Yes. I mean, when they do that. Yes, so, uh, in effect, if I well, let's look at the other at the other side of this. If I take a consequentialist uh, position, that means that you can't really trust me because, under some circumstances, I might decide exactly. to break the rule in exactly. my interaction with you. So, I was puzzled when I was looking at this. Uh, is it the what is the essence of what is going on here? Yeah. Is it the ontology or is it trustworthiness? And it doesn't seem to be the same to say we are wired to like people who, are, who take the ontological positions or we are wired to, take, to like people who are trustworthy. So right. which of these two is it? And so I think, I think what, what, the, what the work suggests is that we infer how trustworthy someone is going to be by observing the kinds of judgments and decisions that they make. So if I'm interacting with you, I can't get inside your head. I don't know what your utility function looks like. But I can infer 
what that utility function is by the things that you say and by the things that you do. And this is a really, really important thing that we do as humans. It's one of the most important things that we do. And so I've become increasingly interested in how do we build uh, mental models of other people's preferences and beliefs, and how do we make inferences about what those are based on observables. So we infer how trustworthy someone's going to be based on their condemnation of wrongdoing, their sticking to moral rules and advocating to a hard and fast kind of morality rather than one that's more flexible. So uh, what's doing the work psychologically here is trustworthiness. Yes. It is not really deontology yes, because uh, I was struck by you know, by something that I'm struck by in general with respect to experimental philosophy and that, uh, yeah. uh, which is that one takes concepts from philosophy and one uh, uses them as psychological concepts mm -hmm. and and, uh, and there seems to be some tension there. there is, so, yeah, it doesn't quite uh, match up, does it? Uh, I, I thought it didn't and I was yeah. going to press you on that yeah. actually because in, in your paper on deontology and mm -hmm. consequentialism, responses, you you actually have an evolutionary theory mm -hmm. of how that comes about. Mm -hmm. And and that evolutionary theory, that struck me as odd, because I found it difficult that people evolved to take moral positions of one mm -hmm. kind or another. I, I find it quite easy, much easier to imagine that people evolved to, to look trustworthy, sure. whether they are or not. Yeah. So, uh, but yet, you know, the, the way that you describe it, it seems as if you have an evolutionary theory of the, of the ontological attitude. So which is it? So I don't think, I, I, I think that what we have is a, a potential evolutionary story for why people have intuitions that have the flavor of the ontological ethics, but they don't map on perfect, perfectly. And I think we get into that in a bit of detail in the paper. One thing that has really plagued moral psychology over the years is that there are these sort of two prevailing traditions in, in philosophy, consequentialism and deontological um, ethics, but um, these really map quite imperfectly onto human moral judgments. And human moral judgments, the average person's moral judgments, um, really looks more like an amalgam of different kinds of ethical theories. You know, you take sort of the best bits of consequentialism, the best bits of, of, of the ontological theories. And, and uh, my, my student, Jim Everett, um, he's absolutely brilliant uh, and has, has studied philosophy and psychology as an undergraduate at Oxford. Um, he, he realized that there's a, another set of, of uh, ethical theories called contractualist theories, which really have gotten a lot less attention in the literature, and, and highlight the, the fact that as humans we really care about fairness, we care about responsibilities and duties to one another, and what we think is right is what we would sort of all agree from a sort of Rawlsian original position. Um, behind a veil of ignorance, what would be the right thing to do to uphold these social relationships. And so the pattern of overall uh, results in our studies about what people seem to find most trustworthy is actually uh, the kinds of judgments that, that conform to a contractualist morality, where you respect people's rights and duties, 
you respect, um, you, you don't use people as, an, as a means to an end, and, and, and you do what people ask you to do, what they, they would want you to do. So really, I, I think of all of the, um, you know, on, on the menu of ethical theories, contract, contractualism seems to me to be the one that matches up the best with, um, with our sort of evolved social cognition. But I, I, I'm sure that's not going to be perfect either. And, and I agree that it's, it's a bit of a, yeah, one might question how useful of a, of a project it is to uh, try and shoehorn human psychology into the, the writings of 300-year-old um, you know, texts. <laughs> that's, yeah, that, that in effect is my question. Yeah, is, so that's, the that's certainly not the goal of, of my research program, but I, I do think that um, it, can be, it can be a useful source of ideas for uh, interesting psychological avenues to pursue. I think these, these philosophers, were, were, many of them really were quite astute about, about human emotion, particularly social emotions. Because, you know, if, the, if, the, if there were selected pressures, there certainly were on emotion yes. and action and, yeah. not on, and not on philosophical positions. So in, in that sense, there is something that fascinates me about the project in general, mm. which is mm. really this to take the concepts from philosophy and to use them, yeah. and in that case, possibly to force them a bit onto yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, onto a psychological yeah. description, uh, because you know, on, on consequentialism as well, uh, saying that well, I can understand why people under some circumstances would do this or that. Uh, there are contexts in which that would not look untrustworthy. It mm -hmm. would actually look like empathy. Yes, exactly. So if you have sympathy for the sinner and you understand the sinner, you're going to sound consequentialist, mm -hmm. but you could sound super trustworthy if you know, you're in clerical garb or, yeah. or something. So, yes, exactly. uh, so tell me how, how you deal with that. Yeah, so one, one current project is to try and understand how different social relationships make uh, a sort of cost-benefit calculation more or less desirable in a partner. So one could imagine that uh, you don't want a spouse or a best friend who's constantly calculating what is the what they can get away with. You, you know, you, we really value loyalty in our in our friends and, and our family, and, and loyalty is something that's often at odds with consequentialism. But in a leader, in a president, in a in a general, um, in a a, a surgeon. Um, we, we may very well prefer strongly a consequentialist perspective. And I think that distinction comes from the fact that when we're in close social relationships, um, the, the, the decisions that are going to impact on us are, are sort of preferential kinds of, of, of relationships. So we want our, our partner um, or our, our, our best friend to sort of put our needs and welfare above other people's. Um, but uh, for for a, a leader, uh, you know, president or, or, or whatever, who's making decisions for a large population, then we want to be treated equally to everyone else. We, you know, I, I think un unless you're a very unusual person, you probably mm -hmm. wouldn't expect the president to treat you differently than, than anyone else if you're just a sort of average citizen. Mm -hmm. so, um, so that's something we're exploring is, is how your relationship with the person that you're uh, you're dealing with um, 
whether you prefer consequentialist or more rule-based morality uh, in close family and, members versus more And have you explored the correlation between uh, the expressions, I mean, the statements that people use or that they favor in that context and and the emotional substrate? Have, that, have you done studies in which you had both sets of variables? Because mm -hmm. what impresses me in this literature is uh, that how often, say, the trolley problems right. are used, I mean, which are the standard you know, ways of in which you get emotional and moral, yeah. moral decisions. And yet, I'm not really sure that the trolley problem is the only way, you know, is the only approach to measuring moral emotions. Yes, I, I totally agree. Uh, and, and that's one reason why in my lab we're sort of moving away from sort of hypothetical trolley problems and, and, and moving more towards um, having people make uh, trade-offs between benefits for themselves and, and costs like physical pain for other people. Um, but but in, in, with respect to your question about emotion, um, there, there is work by uh, Dave Pizarro and, and others um, suggesting that uh, taking a consequentialist perspective in these kinds of sacrificial dilemmas is actually associated with a lack of social emotion. So psychopaths, for example, um, tend to be more consequentialist on these on these uh, sacrificial dilemmas, uh, and 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 that's quite interesting because uh, it, it suggests that there's a, a very strong link between a, a deontological kind of um, intuition and, and socially valued emotional responses like like being averse to harming others. I think this may not be entirely clear to the people who are watching this, so let's let's okay. unpack, you know, the trolley problems yeah. um, where where consequentialism doesn't quite do it actually. Yeah. And but but it's a very special kind yes. of, of problem. So could you describe them for the benefit of Sure. So um, Philosophers and, and increasingly uh, in recent years, psychologists have um, really done a lot with the so-called trolley dilemma, which uh, involves a, a trolley headed down a track towards, say, five workers who are going to die if you do nothing. And in one variant of the trolley problem, um, you can flip a switch so the train will go onto a different track where there's one worker instead of five, and, and you're asked, is it morally? appropriate to flip the switch so you kill this one person instead of the five. And most people say yes, um, you should do this, it's better to save five, uh, to save five lives than, than one. Um, but if you, if you change the dilemma slightly, so um, now you're standing on a footbridge over the tracks and there's a, another person standing on the footbridge and you realize um, that you can push this person off the footbridge onto the track and their body will stop the trolley before it hits the five workers. So again, you're killing one to save five, but now most people say this is not acceptable um, to do this. And so uh, this distinction um, is interesting to philosophers because consequentialist theories uh, would, would say in both cases you should kill one to save the five, but deontological theories um, say you shouldn't. So uh, In both cases? In both cases. So the but the preferences of, of most people are consequentialist in the switch. Yes. Uh, and so, what did that do? That it, it turns out that we are deontological when we don't have a very strong emotion associated with the action of yeah. pushing the fat men off the bridge. Exactly. 
And, but then can we describe people as either consequentialist or, uh, or deontological? I mean, in, you know, in that series of problems, it would seem that what is really happening is that you have a powerful emotion to the idea of pushing somebody off yes. the bridge. Yes. Uh, and and that, how, how did that translate into a, a philosophical position? I mean, this is this is something that uh, folks like Josh Green have, have written extensively on, and um, I think really gets back to the the heart of what we were talking about earlier, which is why is it that uh, within the same individual you will have a preference reversal, essentially a consequentialist perspective when it comes to the switch case, and a deontological perspective when it comes to the footbridge case, and and I agree that emotions. Are key. I think we've gotten even more uh, sophisticated in the way we describe the effect of emotions on these decisions in recent years. Um, we've we've uh, imported some ideas from machine learning, reinforcement learning, to suggest that um, a, a consequentialist judgment looks a lot like a, a goal-directed or a, what's called a model-based algorithm in machine learning, where um, you construct a decision tree and you sort of evaluate what is the best course of action based on this mental representation of the different uh, branches of the tree. Um, this can be contrasted with a, a model-free algorithm or a, one in which you store the values in the actions themselves. So in the case of the footbridge, um, pushing a person is a very aversive bad action. It's been punished in the past, maybe when you were a little kid. Um, and you've, you've probably watched television programs where pushing results in a lot of distress or maybe even fights or, or, or very bad consequences. So the idea is that um, you could have uh, both of these kinds of systems in the brain. And indeed, it has been uh, shown that uh, model base and model free uh, algorithms do map onto sort of distinctive uh, brain systems. Of course, behavior is going to be the, uh, the sum output of, of the votes, if you will, of those, of those different systems. So in the case of, of the footbridge, um, because you have this action pushing a person that's, that's very aversive based on our reinforcement history, this sort of results in more votes against pushing um, that come from the model-free system. Now this, your reference to model-based and model-free, and model it strikes me, and it's the same issue and that I'm responding to, and probably it's because I'm a very old-fashioned psychologist, I suppose, mm. because what, uh, what I notice is these, these terms come from somewhere else. Mm. I mean, most psychological terms you know, that I've been working with, they come from introspection yes. in one way or in another. Yes. Uh, you know, or they or from or from natural language mm -hmm. ways of describing people, mm -hmm. and 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 there is a lot of emotion in them, and mm -hmm. there is a lot of uh, phenomenology in them. Uh, the term that you are using are really borrowed from different places. Yes. I mean, model free and model based correspond to; uh, they don't really correspond to any immediate intuition that we have. Sure. Uh, yeah. the, you know, when when you say that's a focus on consequence or a focus on, on an immediate, mm -hmm. uh, uh, an emotional reaction. Yeah. The word emotion doesn't, in a way, doesn't play here. Right. And that's, that is, 
Interesting. Do you think that this is something that is happening generally in psychology these days, that, that the difference between us is a generational difference? Mm-hmm. Or do you think that this is your field versus sort of my, my history? Is, that, is it something special to your field or general to your generation? it may be more of a generational thing and I think one of one of the most exciting developments in psychology um, in, in recent years is, is a, a, an increased focus on, on computational methods and, and, and integrating knowledge from uh, reinforcement learning and, and perceptual decision-making and basic re- reward-based decision-making into these increasingly uh, complex social and moral problems and what that approach really buys us is an increased specificity in how we describe the cognitive processes, that the, the latent cognitive processes uh, of, that are driving decisions. And, and I mean, I, I think I really see you know, the work you did on prospect theory as, as, as one, of the, one of the foundational examples of this. Um, I, I, I wrote a paper recently illustrating sort of how how much more predictive power you can get when you have a, a mathematical or quantitative model um, compared with a, a sort of descriptive theoretical um, theoretical uh, prediction. So, so we know that that bad is stronger than good. Um, that's a, a very one of the most well-established psychological phenomena. Um, and and what um, what loss aversion prospect theory um, bias is ability to, to actually make very specific predictions about not just whether someone will take a gamble or not, but uh, what's the probability that they will. Um, and, and so the, the approach I think that's becoming more and more popular in psychology is to be able to uh, write down um, equations or, 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 or formula that, that can, can make sort of generative predictions about, about how people will make decisions given a specific set of inputs. We shouldn't stay on that topic, for, uh, for, but I can't, I can't help myself here. <laughs> uh, in, in prospect theory, the key terms uh, are gains and losses, and yeah. gains and losses correspond to something that people actually experience. So prospect theory, in that sense, it's, yeah. you know, it's a, it has formulas in it and so on, mm-hmm. but, but it comes from, in large part from introspection. Yes. You know, there are gains, there are losses, and losses mm-hmm. loom larger than gains. Yeah. I, I have difficulty uh, with what I see in your work, both in the model-based model free language and in the deontological, and uh, that most of the phenomena that you look at involve both. Yeah. Involve. Uh, so actually, there is no direct mapping from the concept to a particular behavior sure. that is that is as general, I think, as mm-hmm. as gains and losses. Yes. So absolutely. But you are telling me that. That, that it is a gener- it is that is what psychology is looking like, and presumably will look like in the next decade. That the concepts come from computation, they come from bioscience, mm-hmm. and and we'll have to adjust our psychology to these concepts. I think so, but I also think that you've that you've hit on a really important point, and and and. Now that now that you you've raised this point, I'm I'm wishing that instead of using the terms model-based and model-free, I, I use the terms um, goal-directed and habitual, because these are these are other labels that 
essentially mean the same thing. One comes from the animal literature and the other comes from machine learning. Yeah. Goal-directed and habitual, now we have a, a psychological introspective label that we yeah. can, that we can uh, attach to those. And, and, and uh, it's, a, it's a really good point, I think, that for us to be able to get a handle on and, and appreciate what these algorithms mean for our psychology, it helps to have a language that, that, uh, that gels with our introspection. Well, I think I think we can agree on that yeah. <laughs> because I I personally would much prefer you know habitual and goal. Then then I have the sense that I know what you're talking okay. about. It's not. Uh, there is a, a study that you published in PNAS that I had uh, had the good fortune of actually being an editor on. So I saw many reviews of it, in which you showed a very counterintuitive finding. Can you just describe what you found? Sure. So we brought people into the lab and we had a, a rather simple problem for them to, to contemplate, which is uh, we're going to hook you up to an electric stimulator device um, that will deliver some electric shocks that are physically harmless but quite unpleasant. Um, uh, unpleasant enough that people will pay money to avoid them. And the question that we ask people is, on the one hand, um, how much would you pay to avoid being shocked yourself? And also, how much money would you pay to avoid delivering pain to another person who's a stranger, you've never met them, you're never going to meet them, they're sitting in a different room. You know that they're there because we've established a procedure to sort of convince each person that there is another participant there, but uh, you don't know anything about them. You don't know whether they're a man or woman, you don't know how old they are, etc. Um, so, Coming from the tradition of many studies in psychology and behavioral e economics where people um, are asked to share money with, with another person, um, people are somewhat altruistic in that they will give some money to another person, but they keep most of the money for themselves. And so the prediction going into this is, is that even though people care about other people's pain a little bit, they should care less about that pain than their own pain and therefore pay less to prevent pain to another than themselves. But what we found was actually the opposite of that. Most people were willing to give up more money to prevent pain to a stranger than pain to themselves. And this was, this was surprising in a way, but, but unsurprising, I think, if you think about it more, which is that deciding to gain a profit from shocking somebody else it's, a, it's an immoral action. It's like very unambiguously immoral. Um, whereas um, getting money from your own pain is, is sort of morally neutral. And so you can imagine that there's a, a cost, uh, a psychological cost to inflicting pain on another person for money that's, that's there in that case, but not in the shocking yourself case. And that could potentially outweigh um, any, any psychological uh, or, or financial gain that you get. The, the key in what, in what you're saying here is for money. Yes. I don't think that was in your title. Do you remember your title? I think it was the pain of somebody else counts yes. more than so, your own pain or yes. some such yes. thing. Yes, and, and as, as science goes, now, now uh, about uh, a year and a half has passed since that paper was published, and I, I deeply regret the title. Because um, I, the, the title is "Harm to Others Outweighs Harm to Self," and, and you know it raises an immediate question. I don't, I don't, 
uh, I don't think I raised it as an editor mm -hmm. because uh, you know my my task was just to look mm -hmm. at what reviewers said. Mm -hmm. But but I have an immediate question. Yes. Uh, what would your prediction be if uh, say you are to allocate ten electric shocks yes. between you and somebody else? Yes. So money isn't. Exactly. Uh, this is the equivalent of uh, you know of the ultimatum game yeah. or the and exactly. and then you could you know you could have the same mm -hmm. you could you could play the ultimatum game on that you could play the exactly. dictator game on exactly. that uh, your situation was basically a dictator game mm -hmm. kind of situation yeah. but uh, what is your intuition would you get the same thing um, so I, I, I have data actually. So oh, good. I, so we've done this actually. Um, we've not yet published it, but um, but when it comes to exchanging uh, pain in a dictator game, um, people are are on average sort of fair, equal. So fifty fifty split. And I think I think one reason, one strong reason why we see this is there's just a strong norm um, for equal allocation of... And, of and that's an ultimatum game, or is uh, it a, a dictator? dictator? It's a dictator. So you, you see more fairness in, in allocating pain than in allocating money. Yes. Because yes, in allocating money, people tend to be selfish. Yes, we've seen that, in, 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 and there's, there's another, another study that I, I collaborated on with, with Ray Dolan and Jell Story, in which um, we had people trading off sort of pain for pain, so um, you know, X shocks for me versus Y shocks for you, and then the same for money. And people are more altruistic or, or fair when it comes to sharing pain than money. Um, and, and when it comes to sharing pain, people are not significantly different from 50-50 split. But if it does err on one side or the other, it actually does err on the side of people taking more pain for themselves. And I think that this relates to a, a sense of responsibility being in the position of dictator where you have control over the outcome and you have a sort of moral responsibility for the outcome. But um, the, the, the point you make is, is really, really important that I think that almost all of the legwork uh, in, in our original studies was from the fact that people don't like getting money from harming For, another person. Yeah, it's but, like the, the moral transgression corrupts the value of the money. And we have some, some brain imaging evidence to support this as well and, and some additional behavioral experiments. Um, following up on this. So, so that's, that's very interesting and I think is, is uh, reflecting a very old intuition in the, in the New Testament of the Bible. I think that that's the first introduction of this term filthy lucre, mm -hmm. right? Money obtained by dishonest means. And, and we, we morally condemn others, both individuals, corporations, organizations who take money from morally tainted sources. And this is really interesting because it suggests that our sort of um, higher order goal-directed, if you will, representations of, of consequences and, and, and the moral status of actions can really reshape the very values that we use to make the decisions. How, how would it work? What's your intuition? If I have a choice between inflicting pain on my wife or on some other woman, <laughs> uh, would, don't you think that people will be much more selfish in that case? Yeah, that's a really that's a really interesting one, um, and I could see sort of two competing predictions. If you're getting money from it, I, I've actually had. Um, I mean, the, here we're. This is going too far. Getting money to inflict pain on your wife. I mean, let's let's not go that far. Sure, 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 sure. But <laughs> I've actually had allocate shocks. I've actually allocating shocks. Um, 
Yeah, on the one hand, the, the intuition is that we will protect our, our, our close friends and family more than a stranger. But on the other hand, there is a sort of sense of uh, forgiveness in our close relationships that, um, that may not extend as strongly to strangers. So that would be an interesting, interesting uh, one. You know, my guess is that there would be a very big difference because in you're absolutely right, mm -hmm. clearly, you know, just by introspection, that uh, uh, it must be the case yeah. that when I'm allocating shocks between you and me, mm -hmm. uh, then there's a cost to allocating shocks to you morally. That seems to go away when I choose between a close relative and somebody else. Yeah. I mean, that's, there is no cost. So there I would expect a lot more selfishness simply yeah. because the, the, the moral constraint isn't there. Yeah. And, and the last question, what would you expect incentives to do? I mean, the, the intensity of the shock. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with mildly, yes. You're, yes. you're dealing with a mild pain. Yes. How about really severe pain? Yes, so I think a uh, couple, couple of things on that. I think that it may be the case that um, the relationship between the the moral costs or benefits of, of, of harming versus helping um, doesn't track so closely the consequences. So there may be a sort of bright line between harming versus not harming that, that carries a moral cost, but once you've crossed that line, then it doesn't actually matter as much how much pain you're inflicting. Um, and that would, I think, lead to the prediction that you would get maybe more selfish behavior with, with larger pains because this sort of, if there's a fixed moral benefit that you get from, um, from doing the right thing, um, then that would be outweighed at some point. And, and, and I, I think that, that uh, that's very plausible. Uh, the, other, the other issue to consider, of course, is, is actions versus omissions. And, and in our original study, um, we looked at the case where you can pay money to decrease the pain, um, mm -hmm. but also the case where you can uh, gain money um, by increasing the pain. And we find this, uh, this altruistic behavior in both cases, even though, as you would expect from, from loss aversion, people uh, require more compensation to increase pain than they are willing to pay to decrease by the same amount. Um, so I think in the case of very large harms, um, this may amplify the distinction between actions and omissions, particularly with these, these moral decisions. So um, if, you, if you sort of do the thought experiment where um, I will offer you uh, $10,000 to uh, break your, your leg um, or, or break someone else's leg, probably um, you would require more compensation to break someone else's leg than to break your own leg, but um, you would be willing to pay less money to uh, save, somebody's to save leg someone else's leg than to save your own yeah. leg, right? So this distinction between um, taking an act, a costly action to reduce harm and, and, and gaining a profit by causing harm might, might be particularly strong for these, these very large harms. Well, thank you, Molly. Uh, thank this, you. <laughs> this has been quite an education because you're talking about problems that I've been interested in for many, many years in a language that, in a way, is quite foreign to me. <laughs> and that seems to be the, the modern language. So, thank you. <laughs>